and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in the cancer cell. They're putting it in personal care products, in toothpaste, toothbrush. And I was really interested in what made people stick with their GP. Cannabinoids are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. We can look at what's happening in the blood and that can paint a fuller picture. The issue is that no country's got this right. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show, you'll hear from someone who was dubbed living legend by the American College of Nursing, is the author of more than 180 journal articles, seven books, and has a career in nursing that spans more than 50 years. Afaf Malise is a force in the world of nursing and nursing education, whose work over the past five decades has influenced health policy across the globe and inspired a new generation of nurses. Afaf is in Sydney as a visiting professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, and I caught up with her to take a walk through her career and chat to where she finds herself now amongst years of research. And that took us all the way back to the beginning and where she grew up, in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. I went to the very first school of nursing at the university level in anywhere in the Middle East or Europe. It was the very first uh, university level school, and it was established by World Health Organization to better prepare nurses to deliver evidence-based care. So that was way back in the late 50s and beginning 60s. And um, of course, I was inspired by my mother, who was a nurse midwife and had such a passion about nursing. What I saw that made me realize that this is going to be a life's career for me is that what nursing does is actually sees the world from the perspective of the patient and thinks of the patient as a whole human being, not as a subject or an object of treatment, but as a human being who's connected to a family and connected to a community. And that's what nursing is really about, is to influence the life of patient, ensure that they live quality life in spite of whatever illness they might have or contract, and live and work up to their full capacity by actually being able to take care of themselves. So it's not taking care of themselves for the moment, but it's providing them with the resources and providing them with the framework to take care of themselves and be well for the rest of their life. It's really interesting. When I finished high school, I thought I knew everything about everything. Mm -hmm. And then every year after that, I realized how little I know and I need to know more. So I finished my bachelor degree and I realized, oh, my God, I really I need to learn a lot more. What do you mean in that you thought you knew everything or like about the world of nursing? About the kind world, of like life. About life and the world of nursing. <laughs> you know, I wish I had stopped at high school because this is when I thought I had the confidence I knew everything about life <laughs> and about healthcare. So then after bachelor degree, I realized I really needed to learn more about nursing and there weren't graduate degree programs at the University of Alexandria. So I applied, got a fellowship, went to University of California in Los Angeles, got a master's degree in nursing public health, and realized I knew very little, <laughs> and that we actually know very little about evidence by which we can deliver the care. Uh, because up to that time, nursing was based on 
what is being shared from the previous generation to the next generation and traditions and customs, but not about evidence that came from research. And what was this evidence that you were trying to collect? Uh, the evidence about the best practices for women's health, for women to maintain their health and achieve their health. And realized at the time then that it's not really possible to develop that evidence without understanding the policies in, in societies and how countries treat women and how much discrimination and disparities in healthcare between men and women and between actually minorities and majorities. So my awareness through research and through studying increased about those disparities and that the disparities go both ways. It goes because of policies that are there. It goes because of stereotyping. Uh, it goes because of stigma as associated and because of focusing on issues related to women's health as if they are related to pregnancy and delivery, but not the whole life cycle of women and not all the roles that women play. Jumping back to this time, how do you begin to move towards more evidence-based care? Uh, well, it, it's two things. Evidence-based care comes from actually identifying the issue that we would like to develop the evidence in, uh, whether it's pain management, uh, sleep management, activity management, managing intravenous injections, safety of patients. So identifying that and then developing a research program to identify the best practices that actually has the outcome that we want, which is quality care. So that's one. But that's a separate issue from that you could have the evidence, but you could provide care that's not equal to everybody, not equal in terms for gender or equitable for also people of color and minorities. So these are two different issues. So in one society, you can have the clinical trials that shows what is the best way to manage pain for people, but then you don't deliver that to everybody equally. Mm. And so the haves and the have-nots and, and those who, uh, who are not stereotyped. We need to be recognizing, wearing the glasses of disparities to be able to recognize that there are disparities in care. This disparities not only in care, disparities in diagnosis, disparities in intervention, and then disparities in care. So wearing these glasses, what is step one to address this disparity and provide equal levels of care? How do you, how do you go about doing that? They are not linear steps. They need to be happening contextually at the same time. So one is to first recognize that's there, to do research to demonstrate, which has been done to demonstrate that there is inequitable care and disparities in care, to educate the next generation of healthcare professionals to recognize that and to have the framework to provide culturally competent care, gender competent care, but number three, for those healthcare professionals that are practicing now, we need to start from the assumption that it's really ignorance about disparities rather than it's intentional that they provide unequal care. And How so? They haven't been educated to recognize it. They don't see it. They grew up in a culture that normalizes it. Uh, they grew up in a culture that condones 
gender inequality and condones race inequality and sexual preference inequalities. It's a very, very complex. It's not easy to tease out. There is something that we deal with now, unconscious bias that's there that people have because they they grew up with certain biases and they go on auto-automatic in dealing with people. So we we haven't really looked at what makes women healthy at different stages in their life. So there is, first of all, there is the bias of educating the new generation to think of women in terms of their entire life cycle. So providing a framework to see women in their entirety and to include their roles and the stresses and the inequities in their roles. Let me give you a concrete example. Most of the caregiving that's given in the world is given by women. Some of it is formal because they are nurses and they are paid for it, or female physicians and they are paid for it. But a lot of it is informal caregiving that is not acknowledged, it's not rewarded. And the caregivers are the community workers or the wives who are helping their husbands or the daughters who are working with with their parents. In some countries... There are no benefits associated with that. That's another role that's added to women without recognizing that caregiving role. So inequity happens at so many levels, at level of recognition, at the level of compensation, at the level of benefits, and at the level of support. Do you see a common thread of an inequity continuing on today? even though we've been talking about it for years. It is. It continues to go on, and it is global. And it's not, we can't look at one one country or one society. When I speak about inequities, people always think I'm speaking more about the developing countries and that that's where women are marginalized and they are not given due acknowledgement and benefit. But actually, inequity is in our own backyard, and we just don't sometimes recognize it. But it is a continuous thread. And where do you see it? You see it still in concrete things as compensation for every dollar that a man makes in my country, in the United States. A woman makes 70 cents for every dollar. So, so that's just a glaring example of it. But you also see it in acknowledging certain professions that are male-dominated and certain professions that are more more dominated by women, uh, you see it, and that's in nursing and medicine, for example. So you see inequity also in acknowledging the role of nurses and what they provide in the healthcare. While 70% of the care in the world in the healthcare system is provided by nurses, and about 90% of those nurses are women. Mm. And so there is a double whammy there in terms of inequity. Medicine is far more acknowledged than nursing, and men are more acknowledged and compensated far more for more than women. Does it prevail? It does prevail. Some of it through unconscious bias, and some of it through conscious bias and policies that perpetuate themselves. And what do these biases, what effect does that have on perhaps even like the mental health and well-being of these women, these nurses who do work and are under-recognized? What effect does that have? It, it, the burden of care is on them. And uh, the risk is for them when they feel unacknowledged and devalued that there is a burnout Uh, There are mental health issues. There is uh, lots of evidence that the caregivers suffer from depression. 
and suffer from unrecognized other symptoms because of their uh, lack of support for their caregiving. And these are roles that are on top of the other roles that they uh, that they already have. They are expected to be continuing with whatever else they are doing in life and add to it that role. Think Health will be back in a second. What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. In parallel in this timeline, how have you seen people's eagerness to get engaged in the nursing profession change? It is absolutely the best time to be a nurse right now. And why is that? So we have better educational programs. We have better research programs. Uh, we uh, We have better resources for nurses. And there is an amazing increase. And with it, also, the sense of caring and making a difference is being more recognized. We have more applications into schools of nursing than we have ever had before and more than we can accommodate. And the reason we can't accommodate them is because we don't have enough faculty. And so we need graduate programs to prepare faculty so we can take more nurses. And there is a lot more need for nursing now in the world because we are living longer. And as we live longer, hopefully we are healthy. But the longer we live, the more possibility that we get chronic illnesses. And chronic illnesses are not for hospital care. They are out in the community. And nurses are well prepared to be out in the community to to take care of people. and, And it's not about curing, but it's about living with chronicity living with diabetes, living with hypertension, living with heart conditions, and at the same time, living a quality life. And that's what nursing does exactly. And not only are we living longer, there's more of us. And there is more. And there continues to be more of us. How does this idea of just sheer global population growth impact the role of the nurse? Well, it impacts it at all levels because as we are living longer, we need more nurses to be taking care of people. But it's also the population issue calls for nurses to help women think about limiting their family size and to help women pace their pregnancies so that they can have healthier babies and they can healthy themselves. So that's another really important role for nurses. And I haven't even touched what nurses do in schools because with the population explosion, we also have kids, more kids in schools. And nurses are very important for the vaccination, for the detection of early abnormalities, for detection of early differences in the development of kids. So nurses work at the entire lifespan. And I should not forget nurses' role in death and dying. 
that is not the domain of medicine as much as it is the domain of nursing, of mm. helping people transition peacefully into end of life through palliative care and family dealing with also things that deal with grief and, and mourning. And nurses, that's nurses' role. And that's an important point because there is still this conception that nurses are confined to the four walls of the hospital. You were talking there, though, about acknowledgement of the role that they do play in the healthcare industry is on the up. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what they do, what role they're playing out in community, not just in hospital, do you still think people don't see them outside of that hospital setting? It's not only that the laypersons don't see them that way. It is the healthcare system doesn't plan positions for them out in the community, not recognizing that actually people need the healthcare out in the community far more than it is hospital. It's more more exciting to think about building more hospital and build, getting all the equipment in a, in a hospital, fancy equipment. But actually, this now comprises very short time for patients. And most of the care that's needed is primary health care out in the community that's for child care, for pregnancy care, for women growing older, for dying uh, is all out in the community. So it's policies for health care that needs to change, which with it will change the public opinion. I come from a tradition where we did home visits and we did home visits for a variety of reasons, including management of chronic care. But when we change our curricula and try to teach students about community care and primary health care, and then there are no jobs for them outside because the jobs are confined to the hospital, then it's almost there is incongruency between how they are prepared and how they think and how, what they want to do and finding a job. In terms of the new generation of nurses... Where do you see their interests lie? Do they want to work out in the community? Do they want to work in a more urban environment? Their interest is to have control on their practice and to be able to practice up to their full capacity. And that they are, they are met with some barriers toward that. But nurses want to influence families and want to influence fa families care and want to influence communities and are well prepared to do that. But they have to earn a living. And sometimes earning a living means that they have to be in a hospital care. But I, I also want to really put the blame on us in accreditation and in licensures, exams, because we do prepare students and graduates to think about people out in the community, but then they go and sit for licensure exam, and most of the questions are focused on hospital care. Right. So it's very incongruent. So it's a very complex problem because you have to change the accreditation rules, you have to change the licensure exams, you have to change the educational system, you have to create positions out in the community, and you have to recruit graduates to work in there and not say, as we used to say, you need to work in an intensive care unit for two years before you can go out in the community, because then we lose, we lose them out in the community. Globally, is there a country that's getting this right? Uh, yes. Sweden is definitely one example. They do far more of preventive care, primary health care, and also community-based care. They train, they do placements, that sort of thing? And they do placements, and there are jobs for that. But it's also some African countries are preparing for that. 
I want to double that with something else, another trend that's going on. We educate nurses and physicians separately, and then we throw them together and say work in teams. Hmm. And they say work in teams. How do we work in teams equitably? And that's where the hierarchy stands. So we have been advocating, and there is a lot of work on interprofessional education, interprofessional, community-based, innovative education programs that prepare nurses and physicians to think about how important community care is and how important family care is and how the teamwork and the success of the working team is the reason for the kind of outcomes that we want to see in our patients and in our families. Why don't we train them together? Like, why would we not already train alongside physicians and nurses? Like, it seems if anything, economically viable, right, to put them in the same environment. But there, why, why, is, you why got do we it. do that? You got it. Because of territoriality, because of, of uh, professional identity. And perhaps it was important to really help nurses develop a sense of pride in their identity as a professional nurse because we were trying to develop nursing education and nursing discipline. But now that nurses have that identity and physicians have that identity, it's time to cross that. So why is it? Because of finances, because of how positions are put, because of disparities, because of inequity, because some physicians want to be in control and therefore don't feel that it uh, serves them right to be educated by nurses. But we have tried. We have put some courses together for students in both the fields, and they have been very successful. And the students, the young generation, are pushing for it now. They don't see how they can work in teams unless they get educated. So they are pushing us educators to change. And so when you come over here and you do speak to, I guess, the upcoming generation of those who are going into the healthcare industry, in a place like Australia, what are they verbalizing to you? Uh, they are verbalizing excitement about the future. But I'm not sure we, have, we are moving into as much interprofessional education as we should. Well, I, 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 I'll take that back. UTS, for example, there is the health faculty. Mm-hmm. And the health faculty is made up of faculty from different expertise and from different disciplines. So I think that's a really great example for that. But from the young side, you see kind of that eagerness to be trained alongside physicians, like all grouped together, because at the end of the day, it's about delivery of care for the patient. And if the healthcare industry and professionals are working together, by working alongside each other, you can deliver that more appropriate level of care, whether it be palliative, whether it be across the lifespan. And not only that, all the research demonstrates now that if you have working teams who are equitably working together, well compensated together, valued as members, that actually the outcome of patient care is fantastic, very, very positive. There are less errors, there are less falls, there are more quality care delivered, but also patients tend to leave hospitals earlier, families tend to be satisfied with the care. So we have the evidence that working teams are vital for better quality health care. So how do you get vital teams to work together? You need to start early and not throw them after they have spent seven years being educated or 10 years being educated separately and then throwing them together and say, work as a team. 
Afaf Malise, Professor of Nursing and Sociology, and Dean Emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Health. For more info, you can also jump on SER.com. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time.